have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, if popularity determines policy, what happens when a product is not popular? When it gets villainized by its opposition? When people think it's dangerous? And what happens if people are mistaken? To talk about how policy gets shaped around both research and popular sentiments, I want to talk about tobacco and nicotine. And Michelle Mitten is a good person to cover on this issue. Michelle is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where she researches, writes, and advocates on the regulation of nicotine, alcohol, cannabis, and gambling. Michelle, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Where are the bounds on the Overton window for nicotine products? What is acceptable and what is not? Yeah, it's uh, pretty rapidly shifted the Overton window and the discussion of tobacco for, you know, the last 70 years of tobacco policy. There was uniformity in the conversation in public health and policymakers. Uh, the public discourse as well was pretty much centered on the idea that tobacco is bad because smoking causes so much death and disease. And everyone pretty much agreed on that. And, you know, the idea that nicotine was addictive and that's what led people to continue smoking and have all these horrible effects, all of this was fairly agreed upon by the 1990s. But with the advent of new technologies that allow consumers to continue using, to continue or start using nicotine, frankly, in ways that are functionally harmless or at least have minimal risks that are akin to something like drinking coffee or having a beer, all this other stuff, the conversation has split not even down the middle, but is split into a bunch of different factions who are all have different goals. So they are pursuing different advocacy lanes in research and in, and in, in the policy world as well, because you have people who do not like nicotine for nicotine's sake, not because there are any necessarily harms involved. It's because they associated with smoking, they don't like tobacco companies, and they don't want people to use a pleasurable drug regardless of the harms. And then you have people who are coming at it from what's called the harm reduction perspective of saying, look, we have cigarettes, they're not going away anytime soon, even if we did prohibit them, they wouldn't go away. Just like with cannabis prohibition, it didn't go away. We, If the nicotine is why people smoke, and the smoke is why people die. We want to be we want to give them the options to consume nicotine without smoke, so that they can enjoy this substance that helps a lot of people. Actually, there's some medical benefits to it, um, but but have them do so in a way that won't kill them. Mm -hmm. So I do want to get into uh, some of the things about why technology has changed policy in in this area, but uh, or at least changed the policy debate. Um, but I kind of want to talk again, like what where are we right now on nicotine policy? Like we've got. Cigarettes are illegal, despite the fact that they're unpopular and, uh, uh, and, and they're linked with disease and death. They're still a legal product. You can buy them. Uh, if, if adults want, uh, want to consume them, they can. They're heavily taxed. They're heavily regulated. Um, and is, would a ban on cigarettes even be possible right now? Not possible now, probably not possible ever. You don't, mm -hmm. you don't get, you can never get rid of a product that is in demand, right? You mm -hmm. cannot cut off supply when there is demand because there will always be entrepreneurs 
in the not legal market, what we can call the black market, the gray market, whatever it is, they will always be there with the incentive to serve that demand. And because mm -hmm. tobacco, like cannabis and other products, are a relatively easy thing to produce and grow or ship from a country where it's not illegal yet, uh, you, mm -hmm. you will never be able to police every single person in a country to enforce such a ban. And frankly, I think we've learned in America where we're just beginning to learn the lessons from history, even if you could achieve a total prohibition that worked in that way, the negative consequences of going about that would be so extreme, it wouldn't be worth it in the end. You'd be putting so many people in jail. So many people would be having negative, violent interactions with law enforcement, and all of mm -hmm. that would be trickling down generationally, you know, criminal records, all the stuff we talk about with the drug war and the problems that were caused by that would, and we're already seeing this in tobacco mm -hmm. control in some countries, Bhutan, for example, um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, did try to pass a total prohibition, but during a total prohibition on cigarettes, but they were noticing a gigantic black market and a somewhat dangerous one because you don't necessarily have the controls in place to monitor these products. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, they lifted the ban and they shifted over towards regulating and licensing the people who make or import these products. And that and that's starting to slowly, and it will take quite a long time, but to chip away at the illicit market that rose up during mm -hmm. prohibition. Yeah, my colleague, Mike Lefebvre, uh, has, uh, works with some economists to develop a model, even around our current policies. There's a lot of smuggling that goes on. Um, this is something that I didn't know until I got at least a little bit involved. But even just buying cigarettes across the border is technically illegal in your state. And you, and you should be. Yeah. If you look at New York State, for example, 60 percent of the cigarettes that are smoked are illegal. They come from another state like Virginia. And that's not even because of bans necessarily. That's because of taxes. When mm -hmm. people want to buy, you know, people want to buy Lucy's or just cheaper packs of cigarettes. So they, uh, enterprising people will drive down to Virginia or somewhere else that's a low tax place. So maybe a, a Indian reservation, for example, mm -hmm. and then they will sell them. And Indian reservations that don't have federal taxes or, or exactly yeah that they taxes. produce their own cigarettes and they don't have to pay the federal tax so they're so they can offer them for a lower price than they would buy at a corner store for example and a lot of times corner stores are getting their cigarettes from lower tax um, jurisdictions because they make bigger profits that mm -hmm. way uh, so yeah no and the, the interesting thing is with these prohibitions you know we say even if they worked the purpose a lot of times is to, you know it's usually said that we're trying to prevent youth, for example, from getting a hold of dangerous, mm -hmm. risky products that might cause dependency and throw them into a life of addiction, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Even for that particular uh, goal, prohibitions are counterproductive because, you know, you, you might have the odd corner store that doesn't check IDs and every teenager knows which one or which mm -hmm. ones those are and they tell their friends about them. But in the black market, nobody is checking IDs. So the bigger that black market becomes, the more access you actually have to bypass age restrictions. So it, it's it's bad all around, even mm -hmm. for the purported goals that they say they have in, in enacting such prohibitions. Okay, so that's one end of, of the Overton window, which is, okay, we're not going to ban these things, but we are going to heavily tax, we're going to heavily regulate, and we're going to ban certain types of products, but but whatever. And I think another reason why they're never or why it's unlikely that uh, that states or, or the federal government are going to ban cigarettes entirely is because they get a lot of revenue from the special taxes that they levy on these products. Um, but on the other end, though, of like where is there much pressure to do much liberalization of um, uh, uh, nicotine policy? 
Yeah, no, because you said um, there's no appetite really for banning cigarettes. There, There is an appetite for banning specific types of cigarettes, menthol in particular, and mm-hmm. flavored flavored cigarettes or tobacco products, which has already been done under the Obama administration. Um, and then there's the stepwise prohibition that's being attempted with with novel products mm-hmm. like um, e-cigarettes, like snus, which is an oral tobacco chew, uh, and heated tobacco products like the Icos, which is produced by um, Philip Morris International. I'm or not Altria. familiar with that. Uh, yeah, so it's the concept of it, you know, this technology is something that uh, Altria or PMI, I'm not sure now which one, uh, they have been, they've been investing millions and millions of dollars into the research technology. It's kind of like vaping, but with real tobacco. It's a cigarette, functionally a, a tiny little cigarette, where the tobacco is heated but not burned to, to release the nicotine. So it's, you know, you get the nicotine hit that that smokers enjoy but you still have the flavor of a cigarette whereas e-cigarettes don't even the ones that are supposed that are flavored to taste like tobacco never really reproduce the experience or the taste of a Mm -hmm. tobacco cigarette so heated tobacco products are big in countries like south korea for example where e-cigarettes are harder to come by Mm -hmm. and it's starting to pick up as a technology especially for older smokers who really just can't make the transition in in taste and experience uh but, but so you have people who there were attempts to ban these newer technologies. Uh, snooze, for example, an oral, oral tobacco chew that's very popular in Sweden is banned throughout the EU. Uh, never really, it's starting to pick up in Norway, for example, but it never really picked up because of the ban. And that was intentional by public health advocates who didn't want this new technology to garner more um, users because that user base then becomes influential in the policy discussion. Uh, but in Sweden, you know, scientists, health experts look at this, Sweden where snus is very, very popular, the smoking rate among men is below 5% now. And Sweden has the lowest rates of lung cancer by far in the EU. So, you know, there is a discussion and a push towards liberalization on something like snus in the EU. England leaving, you know, leaving the EU now, that's one of the things that they're talking about is legalizing snus and maybe kind of trying to throw their weight around to see if they can um, eliminate the ban on that product. And England also is very favorable towards newer other technologies like e-cigarettes and uh, heated tobacco products. So there is some liberalization that is happening, but it is bumping up most of the time against mm. the, like I said, the stepwise approach to prohibition, which we're seeing in the U.S., which is we're not trying to ban e-cigarettes. We promise you we want adults to be able to have this maybe helpful technology. All we want to do is uh, eliminate the nicotine levels that make it useful for adults to switch to. You know, if it's mm. the nicotine is too low, adult smokers are going to try it and say, this isn't satisfying. I'm just going straight back to smoking. Or we want to eliminate the flavors because they attract children, even though adult smokers uh, by and large prefer non-tobacco flavored e-cigarettes. And plenty of studies seem to show that the more smokers rely on non-tobacco flavored e-cigarettes, the less likely they are to ever go back to smoking. And that makes perfect logical sense, right? If you your taste buds start to come back when you switch from smoking to vaping and you start to like all these flavors like Fruit Loops or whatever. I know plenty of adults who, who you know, vape Pop-Tart flavored vapes and all this other <laughs> stuff. Um, but once you become accustomed to this pleasant tasting product, it becomes much harder to go back to smoking. Anybody who has ever smoked a cigarette, for that matter, the first time you ever drank a beer, knows that it doesn't really taste great at first. It's something you become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And with smoking... What it is that was happening is you're associating the taste of tobacco with the pleasurable experience that you get from consuming nicotine. So when you cut those two from each other, you can still get the pleasurable experience of nicotine without the flavor of tobacco and you disassociate. 
you know, it makes it makes your quit attempt much more likely to be successful. It's harder to go back to smoking because now it tastes gross in comparison to all the wonderful flavors that you can experience with with other products. Okay. Um, who are the most powerful interests in setting nicotine policy? Well, that's a complex question. There's a lot of independent influential groups and entities but many of them at this point are interlinked financially or otherwise. So you have, you know, at the very top on the international level, the World Health Organization and the CDC Foundation. But both of these groups are heavily funded by and informed, influenced by the Bloomberg Philanthropies. And Bloomberg Philanthropies gives money to groups like the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, um, the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, what we call the body parts groups, you know, the respiratory societies, mm -hmm. the dental groups. And they are all coordinating with one another uh, and supporting the same legislative goals, which are pretty much dictated from the top down. And they're trying as hard as they can. Uh, and they acquire other groups in other countries to push to, to take this framework that they've decided is the best thing for public health and to enforce it, impose it onto countries where it might not necessarily be the best approach. Uh, you know, we have the Truth Initiative here in the U.S. too, and all of these groups. It's mostly, it's a Western-dominated coalition of public health groups and professional societies that are, you know, they share a lot of funding and a lot of members with each other. Uh, that, so that's what's going on. And they have lots of allies in government, um, in public health agencies throughout the states and at the federal level. So it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of hard, honestly, to parse out where the influence, and I want to be clear that I'm not saying they're all just um, puppets due to money. It's not just follow the money connections. These groups have long been anti-tobacco and it makes perfect sense. They, they are, they are a machine, a war machine that was geared up to fight big tobacco. And, you know, they say they won and to, you know, to their credit, smoking has gone down enormously over the last four years and that's wonderful, but they're geared up to fight big tobacco. And then you have this new technology come out of, you know, left field, and it's not, it wasn't a few of them, pro, except for maybe heated tobacco products were created by big tobacco. And these, this war machine didn't exactly know what to do with these new technologies. So it just decided to treat it exactly the same way they'd done with, with cigarettes. It, it was successful. So they figured we'll do the same thing. And I think that's, it's kind of an inertia that we're seeing within the tobacco control movement is all this giant organ. They've worked so hard to build a coalition and to get everybody on board. And they just sort of shifted focus a little bit, but they didn't really think it through. I don't think. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I want to talk about that because you mentioned that there's kind of two main interests uh, pushing on the bounds of the, of the Overton window here. Um, people who uh, are the, um, uh, want to uh, to do harm reduction and people who are prohibitionists. And it doesn't sound like those ostensible health agencies are on the harm reduction front. Correct. No, um, tobacco. Can, so I, I would phrase it more that there's there's the harm reduction approach and then there's tobacco control. And mm. tobacco control is what dominates, the, has dominated the conversation. And to be really fair here, Tobacco harm reduction, the people who are involved in that side of the movement, almost all of them came out of tobacco control. They were part of it. They were part, they worked for these organizations committedly for decades. And then all of these opportunities came up. And with the conversation around drugs, too, what's really interesting is you see a total split, a divergence in the conversation between tobacco and other drugs, um, mm -hmm. except for maybe alcohol, where in the conversation over other drugs, harm reduction is 
dominating right now. The public health authorities have been pushing for harm. You know, we're talking about safe needle exchanges, um, safe supply, you know, su- supply that is legally obtainable. So it's not, you know, um, tainted with fentanyl, for example, and safe spaces mm-hmm. for people to inject drugs so that if they have an overdose, there's someone to help. Uh, but in the tobacco side, we are st- it's still completely focused on the idea of control, on the idea that we can control people's behaviors and interactions with tobacco. But there is a very large, actually, and growing movement in terms of power on the, re- on the harm reduction side, like with drugs saying, you are never going to stop people from wanting to use substances, whether it's, you know, opioids or tobacco. The best thing that we can do from a policy perspective is to encourage people to do it in the safest way possible and give them the resources they need if they want to quit or do it safer or just get information, whatever it is. So yeah, so it's a split, but there's a growing number of prominent individuals who are kind of switching sides, so to speak. I, I know many of them would not like it to be discussed in terms of sides, since so many of them were part of tobacco control. But a lot of them are switching sides, for lack of a better way to say it, to the harm reduction perspective, which, you know, obviously that's where I fall because it's just it's just pragmatic. Honestly, just you cannot stop people from, you cannot, nor should you try to stop people, I think, from doing what they want to do. The best thing we can do is encourage them to pursue whatever substance they want to use in a safe way so that they don't die or go to jail or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I understand, uh, or at least what I think the popular understand is about, or understanding is about nicotine policies that, oh, is that it's not the people calling for more taxes or the control people, as you call them, that are the most powerful people in this arena. It's the people who grow and sell the products. Um, you know, I grew up with those ads that clearly pointed out that it was big tobacco that were, uh, that was lying to us about the dangers of smoking, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think it's the people who are on the control end that are the most powerful people in this policy arena? Yeah, it's really interesting. So back in the 70s, you know, tobacco control itself coined the term merchants of doubt to describe what big tobacco was doing. And it's mm-hmm. true. They were correct in that assessment and that big tobacco was clinging to any doubt about the harms of cigarettes in order to push back against taxes or bans or whatever, you know, advertising bans, whatever it is, um, you know, fast forward to today. And tobacco control is now the new emergence of doubt. They're using many of the same tactics that big tobacco used in order to cling to any doubt, uh, any, any, any way to villainize these new technologies in order to push for the policies that they want. And, and P.S., another big player in all of this are the pharmaceutical companies that make nicotine replacement therapies and medications. They have always been a big player in the public health space and especially within tobacco control because rightly so tobacco control saw nicotine replacement therapies, the pharmaceutical companies as a way to combat big tobacco. So they worked with them. They got financial support from them and other types of support from them. But now you have one big industry, the pharmaceutical companies who are making, you know, nicotine gums and lozenges and medications and big tobacco who is now in the e-cigarette game and the heated tobacco game and you have all of these interests kind of working at cross purposes with one another sometimes working together but more Mm -hmm. more or less working against each other and the general public all they see is the same narrative they've been getting since the 1970s which is you have innocent sheepish consumers who just follow whatever they see on television uh, and then you have the big bad you know evil of big tobacco. And then you've got all these health groups who are just trying to fight for the little guy and to protect people from the evil big tobacco companies. And that's, you know, in some ways that narrative might have truth to it, but really it's, it's far too 
simplistic to describe what's going on and how many interests, personal and professional and otherwise, are, are playing into this conversation. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I think it's so important because this is how I think people understand tobacco policy. What I mean, you're saying that big tobacco doesn't seem to have a lot to say on on these issues. What what actually are they doing in in this policy arena? No, big, big tobacco has a lot to say about this issue. And depending on which big tobacco company you are talking about and at which time, and on which topic, it's going to be different. Mm-hmm. So you have the, you know, when e-cigarettes first came around, that this was a consumer-driven product. It was created by a pharmacist in China who just wanted to quit smoking after watching his father die from it. And he created, you know, pharmaceutical companies had tried to do something like this with the inhalers, with the nicotine inhalers, which are still around. Those are functionally vapes, uh, but they weren't consumer-friendly. People didn't like them, kind of like the patch. So they stopped using them. It didn't really take off. But, you know, Big tobacco, all this e-cigarette movement that started in the in the, you know the late aughts, is just a fad. But once that became very clear, it was not just a fad, and you had thousands of companies starting up all over the country, all over the world, who are making mm-hmm. big profits and stealing profits from big tobacco. Big tobacco decided to get in the game, like any smart business mm-hmm. would do. Um, for them, I think you know they talk a lot about harm reduction now. Some of the big tobacco companies, particularly Altria and PMI, Philip Morris International. And I think I think it's genuine, not that they genuinely care about public health, but that they are genuinely trying to reorganize what their company does to serve their consumers and to serve their long term profit interests. They know consumers want to use this product without dying. Here's a way to do it. There you go. It's just it makes sense for their profit. So they get involved, you know, um, some of the federal laws that we have, the one that banned all flavored tobacco, the Tobacco Control Act, that was written by big tobacco companies, alongside of health groups like the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. They worked together on this issue. And that was because, frankly, what they were trying to do was keep competition out of the market. They wanted to have all the pie to themselves. They don't want to have new people entering. So when, you, when you're a big company like that, this is what we call kind of a bootleggers and Baptist coalition. You know, you have the moralizing health groups who are saying, we just want to do this because we hate big tobacco. And then big tobacco saying, hell yeah, we're on board too. And the reason is because more regulation makes it harder for new companies to enter the market. So they don't have to worry as much, the companies that exist don't have to worry as much about lowering their prices or giving consumers a better, safer product. They can just continue to exist like we have with cigarette, the cigarette cartel that we had. There's very few options in the cigarette market because of all the regulation that was put on cigarettes. Okay, so the debate is between harm reduction people and control people. Uh, and it seems like the battleground then on this issue is whether harm reduction is actually af- effective and important. Uh, there's, and can people consume nicotine products uh, without causing themselves and others harm? What is your best case that that is a real thing that people should care about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's frankly shocking. It's one of the greatest scientific scientific communication travesties of my lifetime that I have seen. The evidence is so clear on on non-combustible nicotine products like e-cigarettes and snus. It is it is indisputable at this point that products that don't have combustion are vastly safer than smoking cigarettes. Exactly how much isn't clear, but it isn't 50 percent. It's more than that. It's closer to 80, 90, 99 percent safer. And you have these public health groups, Campaign for Tobacco for Kids, the Truth Initiative, 
continuing to say that there isn't enough long-term evidence that we can't know, maybe they're safer, but that's like saying, you know, jumping out of a 10-story window is safer than jumping out of a 20-story window. Mm-hmm. Those are lies. Mm-hmm. Either they are willfully ignorant of the evidence that exists, or they are just lying. Because they're, especially outside of the U.S., the scientific community has intensely studied e-cigarettes for about 15 years now. They've done toxicology. They have done, you know, clinical trials of people, of non-smokers using e-cigarettes. They have observed the physical changes over years in people who use e-cigarettes. And all of the evidence is coming back and saying, if you're a smoker and you switch to e-cigarettes, you are basically eliminating all of the risk that you would have from smoking. So it makes no I mean, I understand why the public health groups continue to say this. And this is what I mean by merchants of doubt. They are clinging to anything that could continue to scare people about these new technologies. And people are already inclined to be scared of new technologies. Remember when we thought cell phones were going to cause brain cancer in everybody? Mm-hmm. You know, if that had won, if that argument had won the day, we wouldn't have iPhones now. But that's what's functionally happening with the nicotine product space is you have some Luddites, or at least they're pretending to be Luddites, Luddites saying that e-cigarettes are this newfangled technology and we don't know all the risks and we just have to be really, really cautious because who knows, it might make you grow a third arm. Um, but that's scientifically ludicrous. We know a lot. We know, we know plenty, enough to say at least that these products should be widely available and frankly encouraged as an option for somebody who either already smokes or someone who is thinking about smoking. They should definitely move to these non-combustibles first. I suspect a lot of people have never heard that message before. Oh, I know that's true because the the news media rarely covers, and for various reasons, the news media is uninterested for the most part in this side of the conversation, in this complex, um, scientific, rational side of the conversation that takes it out of the good guy versus bad guy realm and says, this is about a personal health decision that individuals, including minors, including teenagers, they are already making these decisions. And it is, we should be giving people the information they need to make informed decisions, frankly. And the news, it's not not sensational. It's not like saying, uh, Jewel, this big, bad tech company bumbled into the tobacco space and didn't care about teenagers, just they only cared about profits. That's a far more sensational story than saying, yeah, there were two guys who were smokers, who wanted to figure kind of like the Chinese um, pharmacist who wanted to find a way mm-hmm. to keep using nicotine without dying. And they were tech guys. So they saw, and they were in, you know, San Francisco in the tech Valley. And they said, let's make money off of this. And they were young and uh, naive and they, they kind of messed up, but it's not necessarily evil guys versus the little consumer. All right. So, and again, just to kind of help you, because I think, this is a message that hasn't gotten around and some people are going to be very skeptical of this one. Where would you recommend that they kind of start looking to try and val- validate or deny your claims? Yeah. I mean, this is difficult. And this is one of the reasons the conversation is the way it is because, mm-hmm. you know, I would love to say, just go read the scientific journals, go <laughs> ahead. but also there's some bias within the scientific journals themselves. They are part of the tobacco control coalition, a lot of them. But I would say, look to England, frankly, look to the, the UK government and a lot of the research that's coming out of there. Look to specifically Clive Bates, who was a longtime tobacco control public health guy. And he has uh, his blog, which is called The Counterfactual. He is constantly posting very um, accessible explanations of scientific research, but also the politics and the media coverage of what's going on. I would say 
I think skepticism is great. I think we could have a little bit more of that, frankly, in this in this arena among the public. Uh, but yeah, I would say if you're interested in this conversation, t- first of all, also talk to people, talk to smokers who use these products. Uh, you know, they're often just described as anecdotes. Oh, well, you're just an anecdote. You said that, you know, e-cigarettes helped you quit smoking the first day you tried them. You never went back to smoking, but that's just an anecdote. That's not science. But when you have literally millions of anecdotes like this, it starts to become more than anecdotes and starts to represent a significant subpopulation that that ought to be paid attention to. Right now, the conversation is only about children. And I think that conversation is also... Um, horribly dehumanizing to to minors because minors are not just like i said automatons doing whatever advertised they they have minds of their own as well but talk to you know talk, go into a vape shop if you're really truly curious and talk to the people who are there shopping you'll find people who are longtime ex-smokers now vapors and you'll find people who are there for the first time trying to do the same thing you're doing which is figure out what all this is about but I would say the worst place to go to at this point is like the New York Times or the Washington Post or um, or the Truth Initiative or any of the body parts groups because they have staked out. They have a bias and that's OK. Uh, they have a very clear bias in, in what they're going to tell you, what their purpose is in telling you anything about any type of tobacco product, um, which e-cigarettes, even though there's no tobacco in them, are classified as a tobacco product. So that's where you get the tobacco causes a million deaths a year or whatever it is. And, and then they'll try and link that to e-cigarettes, even though there hasn't been a single death associated with vaping ever, with vaping nicotine products, I shall say. Because there, there okay, were- Because, I mean, in, uh, I'm in the state of Michigan where the governor a couple of years ago single-handedly uh, uh, banned the sale of, uh, fla- I believe it was just flavored- uh, vapor products, uh, citing, products yeah, yeah. citing citing deaths and uh, and the fact that they appeal to children. So what was going on there? Right. So and this is one of the things where and this is the harm reduction versus control argument all over again. The cause of those deaths. So it, it happened in 2019. It began in the summer and young people mostly started in the Midwest, uh, started showing up the hospital with weird very serious lung conditions. And I think about 40 or 45 people ultimately died and thousands went to the hospital. And the news was reporting it as vaping linked lung injuries. And very quickly, and I give a ton of credit to the cannabis media, the cannabis journalists out there who very quickly identified what was going on, which was that almost all of the people who went to the hospital said that they'd been vaping THC products, so cannabis products that they had purchased from illicit sources. They got it from a friend or they got it from a dealer or whatever it was. And some of them also, of course, reported vaping nicotine because whenever you have a substance user, highly likely they use a bunch of different substances. The media kept on reporting this vaping injuries, vaping deaths. Uh, And it very quickly became apparent that all of these injuries were linked to um, black market THC products that had been laced with something called vitamin E acetate. So vitamin E, you know, the thing you would put on your skin, or maybe it would be in essential oils of some sort. If you inhale it, it causes very serious problems very quickly um, to your lungs. And so it took the, the CDC. And that's not something that they use in nicotine vaporizers? Never. No, it cannot. It, um, and that's, you know, even after the CDC finally admitted, it seems like most of the injuries are associated with THC and vitamin E. Um, they never clarified that not a single nicotine vapor product was ever found with vitamin E acetate. And in fact, couldn't contain vitamin E acetate because e-cigarettes are alcohol-based. 
cannabis products are oil based and vitamin E is an oil. And it does, so these things don't mm. mix together. And frankly, uh, I don't know if there was ever any legitimate THC vapor product that was found to have vitamin E acetate. But since that incident, all of the states pretty much that have legal cannabis products put in their regulations that you cannot. I mean, no one would ever. I, I, what the purpose of putting vitamin E acetate is to dilute the product to make it you know, look like it's stronger, more potent, that there's more of the product there because the amount of actual cannabis products in a THC vape is, it's a few percent of the bottle, but you need enough for it to work. You, know, you need to fill up your vape with enough of it so that it can wick and all this other stuff. Um, so people in the black market were functionally, they were trying to make more money. They were, they were diluting their products with something that would mix and would look the same. And it turns out that kills people. And mm. so it, the fact that it was all isolated to the US for the most part, uh, you know, in the pub, the public health merchants of doubt, they were saying, oh, these are all of those nicotine vaping harms we were talking about that we said would eventually show up. But it was only happening in the U.S. and it happened suddenly and then it disappeared suddenly. That's not long term vaping harms. That's that is poison. Something was adulterated, got into the supply. And then eventually, especially once the government started giving people the right information, um, the black market itself corrected because they don't want to kill people either. Those are their customers. Uh, but it, the way that the U.S. government was communicating with the public to this day, I speak to cannabis users, people who vape cannabis products, who have no idea that that incident, what was called E-Valley, um, the e-cigarette, uh, vaping, lung injury, whatever it stands for, um, they still don't know that that had anything to do with cannabis products. They still believe, because of the headlines that they read and what they read from the government, that it was nicotine vapor products, that it was Juul that were causing all these deaths. So they didn't have any opportunity to even potentially avoid getting those products, which they could have done. The government could have easily said, if you're, if you're using vapes, maybe don't, or if you're using um, cannabis products, maybe don't vape right now. Or if you're going to do that, make sure you get it from a licensed, legitimate source. That would have been the right way to communicate. But they were so interested in demonizing e-cigarettes that they, that they slow pedaled, giving the public the information they needed to save their lives, which is criminal, should be criminal. Okay, so you're obviously an advocate on this issue. Uh, besides talking to me, what do you actually do to try and uh, uh, try and stop these bans uh, or, or do other things in, in this policy arena? Yeah, a lot of what I do is, is communications. It's trying to communicate the research, but also the politics of what's going on to people in the public, because it's a complex topic and there's a lot of noise on it at the moment. Uh, just trying to talk with people and but also lawmakers, trying to educate lawmakers, which is a whole different animal, frankly, because you do have the fact that lawmakers are busy people. They are bombarded with demands from all over the place all the time, and they don't necessarily have the time to go to the journals and read the scientific studies. Mm -hmm. um, but even if they did, even if they did have the time and interest to do that, they are also allied. They have coalitions with some of these public health groups, they've worked together for a long time to fight big tobacco. And that's what they think they're still doing to this day. I think a lot of lawmakers genuinely believe that's what they're doing. Uh, so what my role is, is to try and interject some skepticism and some rationality into the conversation to say, first of all, you cannot just think about kids. Kids are not the only people who exist. Also, kids grow up and become adults. So if we're talking about policies that affect adults, it will affect those kids eventually. Um, so I talk I do research. 
I'm trying to put a lot of this into a historical context because I see what tobacco control was, and especially what it is right now, uh, is driven by a lot of the same logic and ideology that has been driving the drug war all over the world. It's this idea that, you know, the public has to listen to health authorities and the best thing anybody can ever hope for is to live as long as possible. Instead of thinking, what do people want out of life? What what enjoyment do they get out of certain things? And can we balance that enjoyment with safety? You know, and who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide how much risk somebody is willing to take? So yeah, a lot of this is I'm trying to humanize, frankly, the conversation so that the people, the adults and the kids who want to use nicotine. Now, I mentioned it really in passing, but nicotine you know, there's been a lot of conversation about how cannabis has medical benefits, and that is true. Cannabis has a wide range of medical benefits for a lot of different types of people. The same is true for nicotine, and almost nobody is aware of that. No one is aware of the fact that there's a reason that 80 to 90 percent of people with schizophrenia are also smokers, because nicotine is a pretty powerful mood stabilizer. Uh, it seems to help with seizures. Some very brave parents who have children with seizure disorders have tried using nicotine patches, and for some of them, under doctor supervision, it has eliminated some types of seizures for, for kids. You know, there's people with depression and ADHD also find a lot of use. So yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to do is say that this is a complex, this is never, no drug conversation can ever be black and white. It really shouldn't be. Uh, so I'm just trying to help people understand the background here and not just have the knee jerk reaction of, well, yeah, that's what Truth Initiative says, so that's what I support. You don't have to support one side or the other. You can say, you know, I don't know enough to have an opinion. But right now what I see is a, I would say 90% of the people who have an opinion on this issue know next to nothing about it, but they've still chosen to stake out a position because, well, I hate big tobacco, so I'm with everybody else on this because that's what I've heard. This is just, this is just big tobacco. So, How optimistic are you about the future of this policy? Well, I'm, I should admit, disclose that I am naturally an extremely optimistic person, um, but I am very optimistic on this issue because of what I've been seeing, especially in recent years, that ultimately the science will win out, especially when you have countries like the UK, which for some reason do not seem to be beholden to the same morality uh, and the same dogmatic thinking as we have in the U.S. They have their own. It's different. Mm-hmm. Because, because of those differences, it has allowed their scientific community to really engage with the science on this and to come to conclusions based on public health rather than some weird political dogmatic uh, inertia as we have in the U.S. So the fact that you have countries like New Zealand and the U.K., um, the Philippines is talking about instead of banning e-cigarettes, maybe regulating them. So that minors can't get them, but adults can. So I think the direction it's going in a lot of countries reflects, is starting to reflect the clarity of the scientific literature. And I think it's really only a matter of time until the U.S. is pretty much forced, the the U.S. health community, if they don't want to be perceived as jokes, which after the pandemic, they are increasingly losing trust with the public. If they want to avoid that, they're eventually going to have to, they're going to have to change course on on the discussion over nicotine. Michelle, thank you for helping us understand what's within the Overton window. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.